Good morning, everyone. Acts 20, verse 7 says, It was on the first day of the week, and we gathered together to break bread. There's a lot of reasons we are assembled here today. We have gathered to sing the praises of our Almighty God. We have gathered to bend in prayer to our Savior, our Father, who hears us every time we call. We have gathered to open His Word and to learn and remind one another of the precious promises we have in Emmanuel, in Jesus. But we've come today to break the bread, to drink the cup. We have come this morning not out of a people who, are tend, who tend to forget. We're coming out of a people who remember, who remember the death and the burial and the resurrection of our King, Jesus. There's times throughout the year when Ricky and I will devote that morning, the, the teaching and the preaching of that morning to this, to the Lord's Supper, and we felt this would be a good morning to do so. Uh, for us to take our time and attention to go back to what Paul would say in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 3 when he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. First importance, it comes before all else, and it needs to, not just in our hearts and in our minds, and the priority of God's people, the cross is always going to be the central place, and that's what we're going to make it this morning. We're going to do what Paul wrote to Timothy, and we're going to give attention to the public reading of the Scripture today, and the majority of the dialogue that you will hear from Ricky and I will come straight from the Word of God. We're going to be taking us back to a day. There are days we remember. We remember anniversary days. We remember birthdays. Uh, today we're going back to the day that Jesus died. And we're going to take it in. Why did Jesus come to earth? Why did Jesus go to the cross? Why on the cross be lifted up? It was the fulfillment of the Father's plan. It was to complete what was promised through prophecy. It was to display the Father's amazing love. This morning, let's open our Bibles. Let's ready our hearts, and let's go back to the day that Jesus died. If you'd like a place of reference, or if you'd like to listen along, this section will begin in Luke chapter 22, as we go to the garden. It had been a long day. The disciples had been up since the dawn, and it was past midnight now. And so their feet were tired and their eyes were heavy. Jesus spoke with such finality at this time as they crossed the stone bridge past the brook Kidron, which led to the familiar place of the Garden of Eden. When they reached the garden, Jesus called to the three, to Peter, James, and John, as they journeyed further in, across the road into the little olive grove. Stooping under the trees, Jesus asked the three, to stay here and watch by saying, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. They nodded and watched as Jesus went but a few feet away. And falling on his face, he prayed to his father, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. And yet not as I will but as you will. 
After a little while, Jesus rose and went back to the spot where he left the three. He looked with heaviness in his heart, seeing that they had all succumbed to sleep. As it seems, Peter awoke. Jesus says, could you not stay awake even for an hour? Watch and pray that you may not fall into temptation, for the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once again, Jesus returned to the place where he prayed, My Father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back again, he found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them there and returned to the place where he was praying. As the weight of what was to come fell upon the Son of God, he returned to bend in prayer to tell the Father that he would accept the cup of suffering that was intended for him. But as he prayed, the sweat which glistened upon the Savior's head changed in its color and its tone. It reddened and deepened in hue. From the Messiah's face, droplets of sweat mingled with blood moved slowly down from his temple to his cheek, to his chin. As the Son of God, the Son of Man, prayed in the garden alone. Please listen. After a time, Jesus came back to Peter, James, and John. The hour has struck, he said. Look, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinful men. The disciples looked up at him, confused. Rise, let us go. My betrayer is close at hand. At this moment, the garden became filled with torchlights and the sounds of a large group of men moving through the trees. Jesus and his followers waited until the group came to the small clearing. Some of the disciples were shocked to see one of their own leading the band of temple guards and Roman soldiers. Judas opened his arms and hurried to the Messiah. Hell, Master! He said as he threw his arms around him. And lifted up his lips to the master's cheek. The Galilean looked at Judas with sadness. Judas, with the kiss you betray, the son of man. Jesus, knowing that all was going to happen to him, then asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again, he asked them, who is it you want? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. I told you, I am he, Jesus answered. 
If you're looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I've lost none of these you gave me. Then the detachment of soldiers with its commanders and Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. He questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I've spoken openly to the world, Jesus said. I've always taught in synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby struck him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest, he demanded? If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. If I spoke the truth, why do you strike me? As Jesus was being questioned, Peter sat outside in the courtyard and a servant girl came to him saying, You were with Jesus of Galilee. But he denied it before them all saying, I do not know what you're saying. And when he'd gone out the gateway, another girl saw him and said to those who were there, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. But again, he denied with an oath. I don't know the man. And a little later, those who stood by came up and said to Peter, surely you are one of them for your speech betrays you. Then he began to curse and swear, saying, I do not know the man. At that moment, Jesus was being led out and taken to another official. When Peter heard the noise from the crowd, he looked up and saw Jesus gazing at him. And he heard the cock crowing. Peter remembered what Jesus had told him. And he went out and went bitterly. Then the Jews led Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, the Jews did not enter the palace. They wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, What, what charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we will not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, the Jews objected. This happened so that the words Jesus had spoken indicating what kind of death he was going to die would be fulfilled. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew, Pilate replied. It was your people and your chief priests who handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. 
You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you were right in saying I am a king. In fact, for this reason I was born, and for this I came into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone who is on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? Pilate asked. With this he went out again to the Jews and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. But it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. And Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they struck him in the face. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. And as soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jews insisted, we have a law, and according to that law, he must die, because he claimed to be the Son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid. And he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you not refuse to speak to me? Pilate said. Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. But the Jews kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away. Take him away. Crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priest answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. Cicero, a Roman senator and eminent citizen, said, let the cross be far from the thought and mind of every Roman citizen, from his ears and from his eyes. By six o'clock in the morning, Pilate had finished 
the work that he was going to do and had delivered Jesus to the Jews. By nine o'clock, they had impaled him on the cross. But the sign they hung above him, Pilate had commanded his soldiers to place king of the Jews. Perhaps his last indignity toward those who had forced him to do what he loathed to do. They took him and laid him on the cross. And with those ruffian nails and the ring of the hammer, drove them into his hands and his feet. They offered him a sedative, but he wouldn't take it. His disciples would not help, they would flee. He would drink down the bitter dregs of this moment until its very end. Suspended between heaven and earth, on that road, doubtless, multitudes of people walking by did not have perhaps the faintest notion of who was being placed on the cross. But, not unlike we today, are drawn to a scene whenever there's a calamity. Like mad dogs, we rush to see the agony and laugh and taunt the one that's hurting. But there were not just the Roman soldiers. There were the leaders, the judges, and the rulers. They didn't have the dignity and the respect to even stay home. They had to come. And they had to drink deeply of the events they set in action. Their hatred ran deep. And they were going to see this to its bitter end. Cicero said, let the cross be far from the mind of every Roman citizen. But we can't turn from the cross. The cross is the center of human history. For everything prior to the cross, look to that moment. And everything after that cross looks back. It is a part 
and center of our mind, our thoughts, before our eyes and ears. The soldiers that were there are a paradigm of our own humanity. There were no horns blaring this day. No flags waving like small town USA on the 4th of July. These soldiers, doubtless there, filled with liquid courage around their fire, simply saw in this man five articles of clothing. A headdress, a belt, sandals, inner garment, and a seamless garment. Casting lots, they loathed to have that seamless garment. These were not ignorant men, these soldiers. They had put many Roman sinners on their seat and they had taken them off. They knew greatness. But they knew greatness because others had told them about greatness. And there's no one here this day saying, this man is great. They knew greatness by brute force. And this pathetic piece of human flesh now hangs helpless and all alone suspended between heaven and earth. I would suggest that we have been citizens in the world that day and had never heard word one about the son of David. Word one about the coming one. Had never heard a word about the Lamb of God. Had never heard a word about the expectation of the Messiah. Had never heard a word about the birth of the King. Had never heard a word about Jesus from Nazareth. That if we happened upon that scene just coincidentally, Cresting the hill, looking off in the distance, and we saw three men suspended between heaven and earth on a cross. And we saw there the rulers of the nation hurling their venom, their bitter, and their invectives against the man in the center. And we heard the man in the center saying, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do we would have concluded this. They have the wrong man. Jesus was crucified. For the last time, He faced the holy city. To those standing in front of Him, this death must have seemed to take a lot longer than anticipated. In fact, the wounds which attached him to that cross, were not fatal. But as he hung suspended between heaven and earth, he faced two unendurable pains. The pain from his wrist as the nails impaled him to the cross is unbearable. And his forearms 
and his shoulders buckled under the nodding pressure of the muscles that could no longer take the pain. The second of which, though Jesus could fully take in a lung's worth breath of air, he couldn't exhale. In order to properly breathe, Jesus would have had to press upon the nails holding his feet in place to extend his body where the crowned bleeding head of the Son of Man covered the sign, the King of the Jews, only upon which Jesus could exhale. An extended Jesus could catch the rapid beating of breaths until the pain was too great, the cramps too strong, and he had to lower himself once again. And he did this again and again and again and again. To add to the insults, the chief priests, the scribes, the holders of the law, the people of the house of Israel came and said, he saved others, can he save himself? If he is the son of God, let him come down and, and prove it. See, he's, he's calling out to God. Let's see if God will rescue him now. And better than everyone, he knew the answer. That to save the very people who put him on that cross, he had to stay. And he had to suffer. He had to see this through. He, he had to die. But in the midst, surrounded by so many who hated him so greatly, or two he loved so dearly, there clothed in the funeral veil was his own mother, holding arms with the disciple whom he loved, extending himself to call them near. The two approached. And looking at his mother, he said, Woman, behold your son. And then locking eyes with John, he said, Behold your mother. And John nodded and held her close. And Jesus had to watch his mother dressed for his own departure, stepping back into the crowd. For a moment, for a moment, the pain and the anguish of the crucifixion faded, but a greater pain and the anguish of witnessing the suffering of those he loved most dear. The best that could be said by Jesus against those who were perpetrating this act of crucifixion upon him was they did not know what they were doing. 
Did they not know? Had they not been listening? Had they been paying no attention to the prophets? Had they not been reading the Psalms like Psalm 22, which told exactly what was going to take place? They did not even know that what they were doing was certifying in an even stronger way. This is the Son of God by fulfilling the 22nd Psalm. What kept him there? It wasn't the tree. He created the seed that produced the tree. It wasn't the nails. He created the ore from which the nails were mined. As Jordan said, it was his redemptive love. He can't come down. And us had the opportunity of redemption and salvation. But as his mother stands there with John after having heard, behold your mother. Mary had kept this in her heart. Did she recall that moment when he was before Simeon and Simeon said he has been born for rising and a fall and a sword shall pierce your soul for the salvation of many. Simeon didn't say a sword is going to pierce his soul. He said to his mother, a sword is going to pierce your soul. This is a deeply human moment. That this mother who birthed him and raised him to manhood could not reach up and wipe the sweat and blood from his brow. Every mother knows she has the tender hand to soften the hardest blows. And all she can do is remember this must be the sword that is piercing my soul. But he's not there alone. There are two other men that day that are being crucified. One on each side of him. 
They're called thieves. And as others were hurling their bitter invectives toward him, the two engage in participating by hurling their own venom toward him. And finally, one halts and says to the other, you just need to stop now. Because we are here because we deserve to be here. This is our just condemnation. But this man has done nothing. Do you find it interesting that this thief knows something that the others do not know? This man is not here because he deserves to be here. This man is here because redemptive love has placed him here. We often hear the cry, I want to be saved like the thief on the cross because having said those words to his fellow on the cross, Jesus said, this day you shall be with me in paradise. And we want that salvation like that thief. Then I would suggest to you to have that salvation like that thief. We're going to have to be on the cross like that thief was. And I've never heard anybody who said, I want to be saved like the thief who was willing to be placed where the thief was at when he received the blessing of the Lord. But the challenge is for us, do we have eyes to see who he saw the just for the unjust? Jordan began by reading 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 3. Even before that, first few verses, Paul said, We preached, you heard, and you believed concerning the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. The salvation story does not end with the resurrection. The salvation story does not end until 40 plus days later. Jesus ascends to the right hand of the throne of God. Now enthroned, he is king. Now enthroned, he is Lord. And now enthroned, he is high priest. And that's what Peter will say to those on that day of Pentecost. He's at the right hand of God, both Lord and Christ. The plan for salvation from God's part, is now complete. But so what? So what to this story? Three brief things to put before us. First of all, the story of the cross tells us 
how deeply God hates sin. When in our mind's eye we see suspended between heaven and earth the hands and the feet of our Savior upon the cross. He is there because of our sin. How else would God portray to us the depth of sin and the pain that it produces? As God seeks to Israel through the words of Hosea, He will say, My spirit is stirred, my heart churns within me. Surely that's more than just anthropomorphism. God is grieved. God is grieved at the creation He made that fell in love. with another beside himself. God is too pure, too holy, too righteous to behold iniquity. He cannot have fellowship with sin. There had to be. There had to be that death sacrifice, but that death sacrifice tells us how deeply God is moved by our sin. It's not just a lack of being etiquette. It's not just impolite. Sin is our tragedy. The second thing I would suggest to you that this means to us is propitiation. The word propitiation is Synonymous with the word atonement in the New Testament. That word atonement simply means a burden bearer. We need a burden bearer. We need someone to bear the burden of our sins. As you stretch it on out, it simply means the price is paid. But we have to be careful with that because if we take that to its extreme, that means there's nothing for us to do. The price is paid as far as what costs God, but not as far as what it will cost me and you. Have you ever considered why did God send His Son? Why His Son? Why not incarnate an angel and spare His Son the pain and spare the brokenness of His heart of seeing His Son put up on a cross for something he didn't ask. Why not just incarnate an angel? Better yet, why not just let him come live and die in his sleep the death of an old man? It's because God is going to be both just and the justifier. And there had to be a call of man to come by faith to Christ and by faith in His blood therefore be the propitiation for the sins of the world 
to be that burden bearer on the cross. And so the blood of Christ being shed, God can now be just and the justifier. He can be just by saying, I gave my son and you turned your back upon him. What else is there left for me to do but to say, lost, 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 lost. But then I gave my son and you were moved by the despite and the, the grievousness of sin. And by faith have responded to him. And that enables me then to be one who justifies. That is, forgives. There had to be the death of the Lamb of God without spot, without stain, without blemish. That an animal could not provide. It was the death of God's Son on the cross. There was the only thing sufficient to pay the price and to be our burden bearer. Third and finally, love. How else can I tell you how much I love you? But to spread the arms of my son on the cross to say, I love you this much. I love you. Will you love me? The greatest sin is not hatred. The greatest sin is not murder. The greatest sin is not fornication adultery. The greatest sin is looking into the face of immeasurable love and say, I will not. I will not listen to you. I will not come to you. And whether we do it with rudeness or shake our puny fist in his faith and say, no, sir, it is rebellion just the same and therefore trampling underfoot again the Son of God on the cross. How can we spit in the face of immeasurable love? I love you this much. And I'm simply begging you. My heart is breaking because I don't have you. I'm begging you, please, let me justify you. Because you put faith in the blood of my son. And have submitted, let the blood of my son. Wash you white as snow. In the waters of baptism. To live a completely new life. To be changed. Not for a moment. But changed for an eternity. Will you come? Will you come? To the immeasurable love of God who invites 
with open arms. If so, won't you come while we stand and while we sing, right? Thank you for connecting with us this morning. We're so thankful that you were able to do that. If you have questions, we'd love to have the opportunity to talk to you. You can contact us at www.thebibleway.com or questions at thebibleway.com. Questions at thebibleway.com. We'd love to have you in person. Come if you can, but thank you for connecting with us.